Hello, and welcome everyone to 1001 Stories for the Road. We're changing format for a while and heading back to classic novels, beginning with Sir H. Ryder Haggard's huge success from 1885, King Solomon's Mines, which tells of a search of an unexplored region of Africa by a group of adventurers led by Alan Quatermain for the missing brother of one of the party. This was the first English adventure novel set in Africa. This story was written during an age when exploration was in vogue, and there was a huge curiosity in the civilized world to know what existed beyond our known borders. Africa held a huge fascination for many. It was dangerous, unknown, and unexplored, and a lot of it still is. The King Solomon of the book's title is the biblical king renowned both for his wisdom and for his wealth. A number of sites have been suggested as the location of his mines, including the workings at the Timna Valley near, near Islet. Research published in September 2013 has shown that this site was in use during the 10th century B.C. as a copper mine, possibly by the Edomites, who the Bible reports were rivals of, and frequently at war with, King Solomon. Haggard knew Africa well, having traveled deep within the continent as a 19-year-old during the Anglo-Zulu War and the First Boer War, where he had been impressed by South Africa's vast mineral wealth and by the ruins of ancient lost cities being uncovered, such as Great Zimbabwe. His original Alan Quatermain character was based in large part on Frederick Courtney Sellis, the British white hunter and explorer of colonial Africa. Sellis's real-life experiences provide Haggard with the background and inspiration for this and many later stories. Haggard also owed a considerable debt to Joseph Thompson, the Scottish explorer whose book Through Maasai Land was a hit in January of 1885. Thompson claimed he had terrified warriors in Kenya by taking out his false teeth and claiming to be a magician, just as Captain Good does in King Solomon's Mines. As we begin our story, Alan Quatermain, an adventure and white hunter based in Durban in what is now South Africa, is approached by aristocrat Sir Henry Curtis and his friend Captain Good, seeking his help finding Sir Henry's brother, who was last seen traveling north into the unexplored interior on a quest for the fabled King Solomon's Mines. Quartermain has a mysterious map purporting to lead to the mines, but had never taken it seriously. However, he agrees to lead an expedition in return for a share of the treasure or a stipend for his son if he is killed along the way. He has little hope they will return alive, but reasons that he has already outlived most people in his profession, so dying in this manner at least ensures that his son will be provided for. They also take along a mysterious native, Umbopa, who seems more regal, handsome, and well-spoken than most porters of his class, but who is very anxious to join the party. And now, King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter 1. I Meet Sir Henry Curtis. It is a curious thing that at my age, 55 last birthday, I should find myself taking up a pen to try and write a history. I wonder what sort of history it will be when I've done it, if I ever come to the end of the trip. I've done a good many things in my life, which seems a long one to me, owing to my having begun so young, perhaps. At an age when other boys are at school, I was earning my living as a trader in the old colony. I've been trading, hunting, fighting, or mining ever since. And yet it is only eight months ago that I made my pile. It's a big pile now, I've got it. I don't yet know how big. But I don't think I would go through the last 15 or 16 months again for it. No, 
"'not if I knew that I should come out safe at the end, pile and all. "'But then I am a timid man, and I don't like violence, "'and I'm pretty sick of adventure. "'I wonder why I'm going to write this book. "'It is not in my line. "'I'm not a literary man, though very devoted to the Old Testament "'and also to the Ingoldsby legends. "'Let me try and set down my reasons, just to see if I have any. First reason, because Sir Henry Curtis and Captain John Good asked me to. Second reason, because I'm laid up here at Durban with the pain and trouble in my left leg. Ever since that confounded lion got hold of me, I've been liable to it, and its being rather bad just now makes me limp more than ever. There must be some poison in a lion's teeth. Otherwise, how is it that when your wounds are healed, they break out again, generally, and mark you at the same time of year that you got your mauling? It is a hard thing that when one has shot 65 lions as I have in the course of my life, that the 66th should chew your leg like a quid of tobacco. It breaks the quid of the routine of the thing, and putting other considerations aside, I am an orderly man, and I don't like that. This is, by the way. Third reason, because I want my boy Harry, who was over there at the hospital in London studying to become a doctor, to have something to amuse him and keep him out of mischief for a week or so. Hospital work must sometimes pall and get rather dull, for even if cutting up dead bodies, there must come satiety. And as this history won't be dull, whatever else it may be, it may put a little life into things for a day or two while he's reading it. Fourth reason, and last, because I'm going to tell the strangest story that I know of. It may seem a queer thing to say that, especially considering that there is no woman in it, except Fulata. Stop, though, there is Gagula, if she was a woman, and not a fiend. But she was a hundred at least, and therefore not marriageable, so I don't count her. At any rate, I can safely say that there is not a petticoat in the whole history. Well, I'd better come to the yoke. It's a stiff place, and I feel as though I were bogged up to the axle. But suches, suches, as the Boers say, I'm sure I don't know how they spell it. Meaning, softly does it. A strong team will come through at last. That is if they ain't too poor. You will never do anything with poor oxen. I, Alan Quartermain, of Durban, Natal, gentlemen, make oath and say. That's how I began my deposition before the magistrate, about poor Kiva's and Vent Vogel's sad deaths. But somehow it doesn't seem quite the right way to begin a book. And besides, am I a gentleman? What is a gentleman? And I'll scratch the N-word out, for I don't like it. I've known natives who are, and so you'll say... Harry, my boy, before you're done with this tale, and I've known mean whites with lots of money and fresh out from home, too, who ain't? Well, at any rate, I was born a gentleman, though I've been nothing but a poor traveling trader and hunter all my life. Whether I've remained so, I know not. You must judge of that. Heaven knows I've tried. I've killed many men in my time, but I've never slain wantonly or stained my hand with innocent blood, only in self-defense. The Almighty gave us our lives, and I suppose he meant us to defend them. At least I've always acted on that, and I hope it won't be brought up against me when my clock strikes. There, there, it is a cruel and wicked world, and for a timid man I've been mixed up in a deal of slaughter. I can't tell the rights of it, but at any rate I've never stolen, though I once cheated a kaffir out of a herd of cattle. But then he had done me a dirty turn, and it has troubled me ever since into the bargain." Well, it's eighteen months or so ago since I first met Sir Henry Curtis and Captain Good, 
and it was in this way. I'd been up elephant hunting beyond Bamingwato, and had had bad luck. Everything went wrong that trip, and to top up with, I got the fever badly. So as soon as I was well enough, I trekked down to the diamond fields, sold such ivory as I had, and also my wagon and oxen, discharged my hunters, and took the postcard to the Cape. After spending a week in Cape Town, finding that they overcharged me at the hotel, and having seen everything there was to see, including the botanical gardens, which seems to me likely to confer a great benefit on the country, and the new Houses of Parliament, which I expect will do nothing of the sort, I determined to go on back to Natal by the Dunkeld, then lying in the docks, waiting for the Edinburgh Castle due in from England. I took my berth and went aboard, and that afternoon the Natal passengers from the Edinburgh Castle transhipped, and we weighed and put out to sea. Among the passengers who came on board, there were two who excited my curiosity. One, a man of about thirty, was one of the biggest chested and longest armed men I ever saw. He had yellow hair, a big yellow beard, clear-cut features, and large gray eyes set deep into his head. I never saw a finer-looking man, and somehow he reminded me of an ancient Dane. Not that I know much of ancient Danes, though I remember a modern Dane who did me out of ten pounds. But I remember once seeing a picture of some of these gentry who, I take it, were kind of white Zulus. They were drinking out of big horns, and their long hair hung down their backs. And as I looked at my friend standing there by the companion ladder, I thought that if one only let his hair grow a bit, put one of those chain shirts on to those great shoulders of his, and gave him a big battle axe and a horned mug, he might have sat as a model for that picture. And by the way, it is a curious thing, and just shows how the blood will show out. I found out afterwards that Sir Henry Curtis, for that was the big man's name, was of Danish blood. He also reminded me strongly of somebody else, but at the time I could not remember who it was. The other man who stood talking to Sir Henry was short, stout, and dark, and of quite a different cut. I suspected at once that he was a naval officer. I don't know why, but it is difficult to mistake a navy man. I have gone shooting trips with several of them in the course of my life, and they've always been just the best and bravest and nicest fellows I ever met, though given to the use of profane language. I asked the page or two back, What is a gentleman? I'll answer it now. A royal naval officer is, in a general sort of way, though, of course, there may be black sheep among them here and there. I fancy it is just the wide sea and the breath of God's winds that washes their hearts and blows the bitterness out of their minds and makes them what men ought to be. Well, to return, I was right again. I found out that he was a naval officer, a lieutenant of 31, who, after 17 years' service, had been turned out of Her Majesty's employ with the barren honor of a commander's rank, because it was impossible that he should be promoted. That is what people who serve the Queen have to expect, to be shot out into the cold world to find a living just when they're beginning to really understand their work and to get to the prime of life. Well, I suppose they don't mind it, but for my part I'd rather earn my bread as a hunter. One's halfpence are scarce perhaps, but you don't get so many kicks. His name, I found out, by referring to the passenger list, was Good, Captain John Good. He was broad, of medium height, dark, stout, and rather a curious man to look at. He was so very neat and so very clean-shaved, and he always wore an eyeglass in his right eye. It seemed to grow there, for it had no string, and he never took it out except to wipe it. At first I thought he used to sleep in it, 
"'but I afterwards found that this was a mistake. "'He put it in his trousers' pocket when he went to bed, "'together with his false teeth, "'of which he had two beautiful sets "'that have often, my own being none of the best, "'caused me to break the Tenth Commandment. "'But I am anticipating. "'Soon after we had got under the way, "'evening closed in, "'and brought with it very dirty weather. "'A keen breeze sprang up off land, "'and a kind of aggravated scotch mist "'soon drove everybody from the deck.' "'and as for that Dunkeld, she is a flat-bottomed punt, "'and going up light as she was, she rolled very heavily. "'It almost seemed as though she would go right over, but she never did. "'It was quite impossible to walk about, "'so I stood near the engines where it was warm "'and amused myself with watching the pendulum, "'which was fixed opposite to me, "'swinging slowly backwards and forwards as the vessel rolled "'and marking the angle she touched at each lurch. "'That pendulum's wrong,' "'It is not properly weighted,' suddenly said a voice at my shoulder, somewhat testily. Looking round, I saw the naval officer I had noticed when the passengers came aboard. "'Indeed. Now what makes you think so?' I asked. "'Think so? I don't think at all. Why there?' as she righted herself after a roll. "'If the ship had really rolled to the degree that that thing pointed to, then she would have never rolled again, that's all. But it is just like those merchant skippers.' They are so confoundedly careless. Just then the dinner bell rang, and I was not sorry, for it is a dreadful thing to have to listen to an officer of the Royal Navy when he gets on to that subject. I only know one worse thing, and that is to hear a merchant skipper express his candid opinion of officers of the Royal Navy. Captain Good and I went down to dinner together, and there we found Sir Henry Curtis already seated. He and Captain Good sat together, and I sat opposite to them. The captain and I soon got into talk about shooting and what not, he asking me many questions, and I answering as well as I could. Presently, he got on to elephants. "'Ah, sir,' called out somebody who was sitting near me. "'You've got to the right man for that. Hunter Quartermain should be able to tell you about elephants, if anybody can.' Sir Henry, who had been sitting quite quiet listening to our talk, started visibly. "'Excuse me, sir,' he said, leaning forward across the table and speaking in a low, deep voice, a very suitable voice, it seemed to me, to come out of those great lungs. "'Excuse me, sir, but is your name Alan Quartermain?' I said it was. The big man made no further remark, but I heard him mutter, "'Fortunate,' into his beard. Presently dinner came to an end, and as we were leaving the saloon, Sir Henry came up and asked me if I would come into his cabin and smoke a pipe. I accepted, and he led the way to the Dunkeld deck cabin, and a very good cabin it was. It had been two cabins, but when Sir Garnet or one of those big swells went down the coast in the Dunkeld, they had knocked away the partition and never put it up again. There was a sofa in the cabin and a little table in front of it. Sir Henry sent the steward for a bottle of whiskey, and the three of us sat down and lit our pipes. "'Mr. Quartermain,' said Sir Henry Curtis, "'when the steward had brought the whiskey and lit the lamp. "'The year before last about this time you were, I believe, "'at a place called Bamangwato, to the north of the Transvale.' "'I was,' I answered, rather surprised "'that this gentleman should be so well acquainted with my movements, "'which were not, so far as I was aware, considered of any general interest. "'You were trading there, were you not?' "'put in Captain Good in his quick way. "'I was. 
I took up a wagon load of goods and made a camp outside the settlement and stopped till I had sold them. Sir Henry was sitting opposite to me in a Madeira chair, his arms leaning on the table. He now looked up, fixing his large gray eyes full upon my face. There was a curious anxiety in them, I thought. Did you happen to meet a man called Neville there? Oh, yes. He outspanned alongside of me for a fortnight to rest his oxen before going on to the interior. I had a letter from a lawyer a few months back asking me if I knew what had become of him, which I answered to the best of my ability at the time. Yes, said Sir Henry. Your letter was forwarded to me. You said in it that the gentleman called Neville left Bamangwato in the beginning of May in a wagon with a driver, a veer looper, and a Kaffir hunter called Jim, announcing his intention of trekking, if possible, as far as Inyati, the extreme trading post in the Matabil country, where he would sell his wagon and proceed on foot. You also said that he did sell his wagon, for six months afterwards you saw the wagon in possession of a Portuguese trader, who told you that he had bought it at Inyati from a white man whose name he had forgotten, and that the white man with a native servant had started off for the interior on a shooting trip, he believed. Yes. There came a pause. Mr. Quartermain, said Sir Henry, suddenly, I suppose you know or can guess nothing more of the reasons of my, of Mr. Neville's journey to the northward, or as to what point that journey was directed. I heard something, I answered, and stopped. The subject was one which I did not care to discuss. Sir Henry and Captain Good looked at each other, and Captain Good nodded. Mr. Quartermain, said the former, I am going to tell you a story, and ask your advice, and perhaps your assistance. The agent who forwarded me your letter told me that I might implicitly rely upon it, as you were, he said, well-known and universally respected in Natal, and especially noted for your discretion. I bowed and drank some whiskey and water to hide my confusion, for I am a modest man. And Sir Henry went on. Mr. Neville was my brother. Oh, I said, starting, for now I knew who Sir Henry had reminded me of when I first saw him. His brother was a much smaller man and had a dark beard, but now I thought of it, he possessed eyes of the same shade of gray and with the same keen look in them, and the features, too, were not unlike. He was, went on Sir Henry, my only and younger brother. Until five years ago, I do not suppose we were ever a month away from each other. But just about five years ago, a misfortune befell us, as sometimes does happen in families. We quarreled bitterly, and I behaved very unjustly to my brother in my anger. Here Captain Good nodded his head vigorously to himself. The ship gave a big roll just then, so that the looking-glass, which was fixed opposite us to starboard, was for a moment nearly over our heads, and as I was sitting with my hands in my pockets and staring upwards, I could see him nodding like anything. "'As I dare say you know,' went on Sir Henry, "'if a man dies intestate and has no property but land—real property it is called in England— it all descends to his eldest son. It so happened that just at the time when we quarreled, our father died intestate. He had put off making his will until it was too late. The result was that my brother, who had not been brought up to any profession, was left without a penny. Of course, it would have been my duty to provide for him, but at the time the quarrel between us was so bitter that I did not, and to my shame I say this, 
offer to do anything. It was not that I grudged him anything, but I waited for him to make advances, and he made none. I am sorry to trouble you with all this, Mr. Quartermain, but I must to make things clear. Eh, good? Quite so, quite so, said the captain. Mr. Quartermain will, I am sure, keep this history to himself. Of course, said I, for I rather pride myself on my discretion. Well, went on Sir Henry, my brother had a few hundred pounds to his account at the time. Without saying anything to me, he drew out this paltry sum, and, having adopted the name of Neville, started off for South Africa in the wild hope of making a fortune. This I heard afterwards. Some three years passed, and I heard nothing from my brother, or of my brother, though I wrote several times. Doubtless the letters never reached him. But as time went on, I grew more and more troubled about him. I found out, Mr. Quartermain, that blood is thicker than water. That is true, said I, thinking of my boy Harry. I found out, Mr. Quartermain, that I would have given half my fortune to know that my brother George, the only relation I have, was safe and well, and that I should see him again. But you never did, Curtis, jerked out Captain Good, glancing at the big man's face. Well, Mr. Quartermain, as time went on, I became more and more anxious to find out if my brother was alive or dead, and if alive, to get him home again. I set inquiries on foot, and your letter was one of the results. So far as it went, it was satisfactory, for it showed that till lately George was alive, but it did not go far enough. So, to cut a long story short, I made up my mind to come out and look for him myself, and Captain Good was so kind as to come with me. Yes, said the captain. Nothing else to do, you see. Turned out by my lords of the admiralty to starve on half pay. And now perhaps, sir, you will tell us what you know or have heard of the gentleman called Neville. Stay tuned for Chapter 2, The Legend of Solomon's Mines. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>